So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty. World's energy. biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Special. Hello and welcome to this edition of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. Environmental and climate disasters pack a hard punch on low-income communities and communities of color. As we've seen from lead pipes in Flint, Michigan, toxic sites in East Chicago, severe hurricanes and flooding in Texas, Miami, and Puerto Rico. Recently, Epic's Mark Templeton professor at the University of Chicago Law School and the director of the Abrams Environmental Law Clinic, got the chance to sit down with Jackie Patterson, the director of the Environmental and Climate Justice Program for the NAACP. They discussed the intersection of environmental and social justice issues. Let's listen to their conversation. First of all, thank you everyone for coming. Thank you, Shri and PSI. Um, this, yeah, here, a round, a round of applause. Uh, I have been uh, wanting to have Jackie come to campus uh, for probably three or four years now since we at the Abrams Clinic uh, over at the law school started doing work with her and some of her colleagues in Indiana and Michigan. And so I'm really grateful that uh, Shri and PSI and the student government helped uh, make this event possible. And the Jackie's busy schedule permitted it. So thank you, Jackie, uh, for coming. Um, so I am going to start off by uh, asking some questions uh, of Jackie, um, which could probably go on for a long time. But I will uh, stop uh, and make sure to open the floor up to you all uh, and really look forward to your questions uh, as well. Uh, so Jackie, I, I just want to start off. Uh, for those who are not uh, as familiar with environmental justice uh, as a concept or the field. Could you start off just by kind of explaining uh, what, what that means generally and what it means in your work? Yeah, sure. So generally environmental justice is defined as the uneven distribution of the, the burdens and the benefits of, of, of the environment. So, um, so when they talk about environmental justice communities, they're referring to communities that are disproportionately negatively impacted by pollution and other environmental-based injustices. And, um, and then also it refers to the, the, the uneven enjoyment of the bounty in terms of the environment and how some, some groups are, are more benefited by the <coughs> wild lands and so forth and the wild places than others. Mm -hmm. What are some of the uh, examples of the things that you're working on these days to, ad uh, to address some of these issues? I was just thinking in terms of helping to make it concrete for people. Sure. So one is, one is, is working with communities that are facing these environmental injustices. So working with communities like, uh, like 
Dixon, Tennessee, where the community had faced having their water supply contaminated because of the erosion of a landfill liner in, um, that resulted in trichloroethylene getting into their water supply. And then the community not knowing that this was happening and then drink, drinking that water for years and then finding out later that their that they that the community that this is the African American community that was drinking the water for years, while white American um, um, families in the area had gotten a letter saying not to drink the water, and so they only started to find out when they when they saw a rare uh, an odd uh, pattern of rare forms of birth defects and then premature cancers, and then that's when they investigated and found out that years ago people had gotten these letters not to drink the water. And so those kind of um, situations that we're dealing with with communities across the country, helping them to find justice in those circumstances and helping them have relief from those kind of toxic exposure. And, and um, in, in your work, uh, I mean, I mean I, I'm kind of stunned, frankly, uh, that, uh, it, that uh, it, it wasn't that they weren't even, uh, officials weren't even aware, it was the literally different notification which led different communities based on color right. um, to take different act actions with different impacts on their health. And even the animal shelter had been put on an alternate form of water um, during that time. So it was egregious and they did win a settlement because it was very clear, it was in the county records that these letters had gone out and it was in the county records that they didn't go out to other folks. And so they won a $3 million settlement, but that was nothing compared to the loss of life and so forth that had happened. Um, how, how often in your work are you see, uh, uh, seeing um, these kinds of things which are so egregious on their face like this versus what some people might say is kind of a subtler, um, where it's they don't even bother looking, um, uh, or there are not enough resources for this community for whatever set of reasons, mm -hmm. um, and so there are uh, discriminatory impacts right. fr from that. I mean, it, 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 how does it kind of I don't know, how does it break out between those kind of those kinds of things? Are you, are you seeing a lot of the really egregious facial kind of problems? You know, I do see a, a shocking amount of the most egregious where, you know, places where there's these intense cancer clusters where it's just undeniable that, you know, other folks don't have these rates of cancer. One community, I recently did a panel at the UN Commission on the Status of Women, and one person on the panel was from Port Gibson, Mississippi, where there's a nuclear reactor there. And she talked about how since the nuclear reactor came online, all of the, the cancers that had developed in the community premature cancers and she spoke specifically about having three sisters and she and all three of her sisters had lost a, each lost a classmate before high school graduation to cancer in that community and so unfortunately those those stories are all too common those cancer clusters are all too common but then there are other communities where um, where folks don't even know that it's not the norm that you know half the kids in the in the high in the um, classroom have asthma and half the people in their church are, have um, chronic um, obstructive pulmonary disease. Like they don't even realize that that's not what happens in the world, not like in all other communities. It's just, you know, just happening to them. And, 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 um, and so it, it, it isn't as obvious to them and then they're invisible to, to others. And, and if because of the lack of monitoring and enforcement that happens around these, these exposures, you know, a lot of folks are kind of suffering and dying in silence and, and invisibility. Uh, 
You were talking about these cancer clusters, right, which are places where uh, there's much higher incidence of cancers or certain kinds of cancers. And um, while they're called cancer clusters, there are also other places where the people have a lot of issues, such as birth defects, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Respiratory illness, Re respiratory illness uh, et cetera. Um, how do you th think about that issue in, in the sense that, in, in terms of strategies, um, I, I think that often these uh, places, not maybe not always, but often these are places that have multiple uh, industrial facilities, mm -hmm. or it's the nuclear power plant by the chemical power plant, by the petroleum refinery, by the cement, I mean, whatever the whole, it's, it's, a, it's a whole, it, so how do, you, how do you think about, like, uh, and in the local communities you work with, kind of think about the strategy for something? Mm. Because it, it, it may not be just, the permit for a particular facility, and is that facility emitting too much? Although it might be that, right. but it's a, it's a whole complex. So right. how, how do you all th think about that? Yeah, so it's a challenge, and then fortunately, again, there's too many communities in that circumstance. You have a place like Mossville, Louisiana, where it's that very thing, where there's these cumulative, all these, it's in the petrochemical corridor, and they just have this, um, this conflagration of all these different place, uh, uh, pollutant sources. And so the conversation there is, you know, is this really just, like, do we fight this on principle, the fact that, you know, that, that these facilities shouldn't be polluting these communities, or should we just really focus on getting folks out of harm's way? And that really becomes the conversation, because it's not right that the people would be the ones who have to move and have their whole lives torn asunder, but yet at the same time the reality is that it's not necessarily politically or, or economically viable to see those those facilities move instead so um so this becomes the struggle in so many places and so you have a place like east chicago indiana mm -hmm. where i don't know if folks know about the the situation there with the contamination of the soil and water and so forth from this lead and it's, it was so intense that, you know, a thousand times the EPA allowable amount of arsenic and lead in the soil and 30 times the allowable amount of, um, of lead in, in the kids' blood, blood there. And so they finally did kind of condemned the area and said that the, the years and years of remediation weren't going to be enough and um, there haven't been enough and so that it was not going to be enough. And so not only have they moved folks They've moved, it's not like they've moved the entire community. They've moved, you know, some people have gone to Allgale Gardens here in Chicago. Other people have gone to other places in Indiana. So literally the people, the generations that have lived together in community for years, are, you know, the whole community no longer <coughs> exists. And the people together no longer exist. Some, t some families have even been split up um, from not being able. And so you have a lot of places that are in the circumstances of having to make those types of choices. Mm -hmm. If, if people in that kind of community came to you and said, what should we be thinking about here, right? Because the community is providing us with bonds and the, the multi-generational aspects and things like that, but you also have this incredible contamination. How would you, how would you help them th think through those issues? Yeah, so one thing, one thing just even looking now, because we also work on climate change, and you have in, um, in uh, this place called Ile de Jean Charles in, um, in Louisiana, this place called, Ile, this community called the Ile de Jean Charles Biloxi Chittimaca Choctaw um, Nation um, that had uh, to move because of sea level rise. 
And in that case, there was actually intentional efforts made to keep that group together and move them together. And so we actually called on some of the legal folks that we know, the law schools that we knew, knew to get a sense of like, what are the legal handles? Like, are there any legal handles to help people to be able to have the right to stay together and to be able to, and, and were, they, were, they, were they doing that based on treaty rights or what exactly were the legal handles there? So we're still trying to find out because we weren't able to present, permit, you know, keep people together with East Chicago as much as people wanted it. So, so that's all to say it's an open question that we're trying to find the answer to because we're, we're not only are we have other communities that are facing having to move because of the toxins, but we also have other communities that are facing facing having to move because of sea level rise as well. Mm -hmm. How do you think about your role um, in the national uh, NAACP um, in the context of these local communities? Mm -hmm. So um, I guess there's, that's a kind of a more general question. What is the relationship of the national organization to the local communities generally and particularly in your field? Mm -hmm. And then in a context like this, how? Uh, maybe how do you um, help the communities, but uh, maybe not impose your will um, coming from the national perspective? Or, or is, there diver is there possible divergence of agenda yeah. in certain cases here? So it depends. So uh, the relationship, first off, the NAACP is the sum of its parts. We have 2,200 branches and chapters throughout the country, and they are the NAACP. And technically, if things are the way they're supposed to be, we're supposed to be in service to the agenda and the desires of our frontline communities, which is our branches and chapters. And so that's the idea. <laughs> and generally, you know, we try to, to maintain that. Um, the times when it kind of diverges, is, and, and we maintain it in a number of different ways. We, we facilitate visioning sessions with communities, and then out of those visions, visioning sessions, we help them to develop a strategy to get to wherever they want to go as it relates to whatever comes out of the vision. And then we connect them to partners who can help them go to where they want to go. Sometimes, one of the times I was meeting with a community in West Virginia, in, it wasn't part of the visioning session, but in the course of the, uh, the, uh, of the branch meeting, they started talking about going down to this job fair and holding a job fair um, for oil and gas, to get jobs in oil and gas industry. <laughs> so so how'd that make you feel? Yeah, so then that becomes a place where you're, <laughs> you're thinking, okay, you know, what principle, um, what principle overrides the other principle? Because, you know, you have a principle of bottom of organized and then you have a principle of like, leave it in the ground and so forth. And so that's where you start to see some of those conflicts. Fortunately, in that case, I wasn't called upon to help host the oil and gas <laughs> job fair. So I didn't have to make any tough choices, but. You know, that's so, so that's where you would have drawn the line. That's where I would have to draw the line. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Uh -huh. in, 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 interesting. Yeah. Um, what? So you talked about visioning. Uh, what other forms of support and resources uh, does the national organization provide to the local branches? Yeah, it's really that that combination of the visioning, the facilitation of the strategy sessions, you know, so like people will come up with their vision, like we want clean air, we want clean water, and so forth. And then we'll do, you know, we'll facilitate things like developing a SWOT analysis and so forth. And then... And what is a SWOT, an, what is a SWOT, oh, SWOT analysis, analysis for people who don't know? Yeah, sorry. Which is like deciding what the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, and the threats are to whatever it is the vision is. And then from there, figuring out what um, you know, what are the what are their assets in their community, and what, you know, and so forth. And then from there, developing 
a plan to get to where they want to go and then figuring out how do we eliminate the threats and the barriers and then how do we build on the strengths and the and the um, assets and opportunities and so and then from there we will provide technical support in them doing that whatever it is or we will connect them with partners whether it's you know universities <coughs> or other nonprofit organizations who might have more expertise in one area or another to help them or we'll connect them with financial resources if that's what they need in order to do what they want to do but and it will and we'll also introduce them to to models like okay here was another community that wanted to do something similar and here's a blueprint of how they did it and they were successful and here's how you could customize that to your situation hmm. uh, um, so you have a long history of working on environmental uh, type issues mm -hmm. how long is the history of the NAACP working on environmental issues and how much of a priority is it for the organization today mm -hmm. um, in light of all of the other issues for uh, communities of color and maybe even under the current administration. Mm -hmm. So how, where, does, where does environment, I guess both historically and presently kind of fit within the priorities uh, for the NAACP? Yeah, so it's um, historically the communities, you know, who have been on the front lines, where, whether it's folks in some of the historic um, uh, kind of foundational cases that, that formed the EJ movement, like the Warren County, North Carolina case around the PCBs, um, which stands for, I forget what it stands for even, but anyway, <laughs> it's a toxin. Um, and so, so, they, uh, so the, the work that they, they did there around the, in the front lines to fight against um, landfill violations and that kind of thing, and so NAACP was right there as part of that because you know NAACP is in so many places, particularly in the Southeast, and so there's, there's the communities who have been fighting these fights at the, at the front lines for, for decades now. But then there is the national program, which just started eight years ago. And so the national program didn't even come as a result of like a groundswell of these, of these communities rising up and saying We're, we have these environmental injustices. It really came as a result of this, this uh, realization around the intersection of climate change. And, um, and African-American communities in particular, but civil rights in general. And so, and even that didn't come through a groundswell. It was really a, a, one of the big green organizations who came and met with us and another organization that had been funded to, do, to put together this commission to engage African-Americans on climate change. And, um, and so there was this notion that the NAACP can really start to engage African-Americans on climate change. And so it didn't start in that organic way, really, as a program. But in the first few years, since I, you know, because I came in as a founding director, I started to have conversations with communities. And even though they didn't necessarily see climate justice or climate change to be directly intersectional with their lives, as we started to have these conversations, they started to see those connections. And it's grown as a program. Um, we've, made, we've, we've particularly drawn the intersections between traditional environmental justice and climate change. And so, it, so in, in weaving together those connections, people have gotten more interested. And over the years, it's gone from being the smallest program out of the six program areas, which include health, criminal justice, economic justice, and so forth, to the largest department in the association. And so it's definitely grown in that sense. You're, you're quite a director then. Of, uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> no, the needs are out there, I think. Well, yeah. well, can you say more about the needs? Because in the sense that we started the conversation uh, about environmental justice, and it, it largely started off with conversations about Warren County and uh, toxics 
and landfills and people living adjacent to and uh, birth defect. I mean, kind of your traditional litany, uh, when we think about a, tr a traditional litany of um, uh, environmental harms. Mm -hmm. How does climate factor into that? Mm -hmm. uh, where are the harms and how does it harm African-American communities? Mm -hmm. So climate factors in both in terms of some of the traditional EJ is part of the climate continuum because those same toxic facilities that are harming communities and their environmental health are the same ones that are spewing out the greenhouse gas emissions that drive climate change. So we see that. So coal-fired power plants, mm -hmm. chemical plants, okay. Yeah, and even landfills and incinerators because of the methane that they put out. So all of these different um, um, practices that are harmful from a traditional EJ standpoint, many of them are contributing to, to climate change. So that's one key intersection that we see. And then on the climate change side, we see how communities of color, you know, whether it's Katrina or otherwise, are disproportionately impacted by climate change on the other side of the climate continuum. And so, and yet uh, are least responsible for the greenhouse emissions that drive climate change, because it tends to be uh, wealthier communities that consume more, and the consumption is where what's driving this climate change. Mm -hmm. Do you find uh, uh, interest? So I, I can see the Katrina, uh, um, the the kind of I'll say coastal mm -hmm. related climate change issues. Um, is this is climate change uh, an issue with salience to uh, branches and chapters kind of in the Midwest and other parts of the country that may not be having the brunt of things like uh, Katrina or Harvey or et cetera? Um, it depends. So to some extent, uh, when, and this is, a, this is the importance of the first couple of years, which was helping to weave the narrative, like helping people to see the arc of climate change and see that entire continuum and where they fall on that continuum. So certainly in the Midwest, that's disproportionately host to these coal-fired power plants in particularly urban er areas. They see that connection. When we also talk about um, the shifts in agricultural yields and drought and, and the effects on farmers, um, certainly with some of the rural areas, even in the Midwest and the Plains states and so forth, people start to see the connection because they've seen how the agricultural yields have shifted. Um, uh, communities of color are disproportionately sus um, sustenance fisher, fisher folks, and they've seen how their waterways across the, across the country have changed. And so folks have definitely seen, and then also in the urban heat islands, um, that we have in the in the Midwest and you know in Chicago I and mean, we've seen some of the heat waves and it's uh, how it's affected folks so people start to see the impacts there and they, they can see the differences over time and we can really help folks to see the connection to climate change so in that way yeah definitely that's interesting um, how do you prioritize I mean you're uh, it seems like you're taking on so much now Sounds like you've got the biggest program, but I'm sure that there's more that you want to do yeah. than the resources that you have. That's true. I mean, our program size is more than quadrupled, but the level of demands have, have risen exponentially. So even though we're at the biggest program, <coughs> we're the biggest that we've been, it feels the least manageable of ever, like, and to a huge extent, not just a little bit, like, hugely unmanageable. Um, it's, it's just uh, unbelievable. And so, yeah, and so how do we... But there, but yeah, but there are, a lot, there are a lot of different places you could be, I mean, you, you could be spending all of your time in Washington. You could be spending all of your time in 
certain areas. You could spend your time just on coal-fired power. I mean, there's a huge range of things. So, yeah. so we, prioritize, we prioritize first and foremost of being about working with our frontline community. So our first, our first allegiance is to working with our branches and chapters and our state leaders to, to help them to know how to sit at their decision-making tables and make a difference. So whether they're sitting in, you know, on some advisory council at the, at the municipal level or sitting in the uh, halls of the public service or the, you know, the rooms of the public service commission or wherever it is that there's decisions being made, how they can be there and be influential. So that's our first and foremost. And then it's, it's simultaneously we're helping them to kind of be the change they want to see in the world. So in some ways the environmental climate justice program is a little bit divergent from the other programs in that while we're working on, it's a civil rights advocacy organization. So for a large extent, we're supposed to be working on policy change, but we also see that we also need to start to model the ways that the policies should shift by, by actually starting to pave that path. So we, um, so instead of just working on clean energy policies, we help communities to develop solar gardens and community solar projects so that they are then stronger when they go and they advocate for the Public Service Commission. They can say, this is, this is what this means to me, and this is how it's helped me. Um, and so we're, we're, we're being very kind of concrete in that sense in terms of helping people to start demonstration projects and pilot projects so that they can kind of be a, a, living, a living demonstration of, of what it looks like when we have the policies that we need. What are some of the challenges that are faced in getting these pilots going? Ah, so some places it's, um, some places you need the policies before you can implement, you know, so you can't really have an off-grid community solar project or even, or an on-grid community solar project in some places because it's literally against the law. And so that's, you know, <laughs> that's obviously a problem. <laughs> we don't want to be leading people into, uh, into jail. So. So, uh, <laughs> as a lawyer, I would advise against that. <laughs> so um, our legal department would frown on that as well. Yeah, okay. um, so, so that's that's probably one of our biggest problems. Is that a lot of the things because the things that we want folks to do, and the ways the ways that we need things to go are transformational. So by definition, they're things that aren't necessarily you know legal now because we want to change the laws, and so. Um, yeah, and then uh, the, so with that we have places where you know where we can do some of these things like California and so forth. But then people are like, oh, California, of course it's happening there. So it's not really is <laughs> you know not really the best example. So we were able to get you know we were able to get a solar a solar project going in Fairbanks, Alaska. That was something we could hold up. <laughs> you know we were able to get a project going in Pittsburgh. That was something people were you know felt like okay, well if it can happen there, I can maybe do this as well. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, what, what do you think are the uh, unique or important perspectives uh, that communities of color or African Americans can bring to the climate issue or renewable energy issue in their local communities? Um, kind of what's, 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 what's distinctive and critical uh, about, the, about that? I mean, aside from the obvious fact that the voice should be at the table, but what, what's, what's, yeah. what's, the, what's the value, additional value, what do you say is the value add so there? So part of it is pushing back on, the, on the, the dominant narrative or, you know, some of the narratives around, you know, because there's a lot of, um, even energy companies will, will use this when they go into communities like 
solar is only for rich people or solar is only for white people or these kind of things are for kind of hippie folks and it's, it's unattainable for like the regular person. So really making sure that frontline community folks, low income folks, communities of color, that we really demonstrate that anyone can have access to this and we can, we can all do this together and we can, it can lead to economic justice for all is, um, is a key benefit. What's your view kind of generally on EPA? Um, you know, does EPA, do people at EPA, um, well, let, let, me just start, let me start with that. How effective is EPA at, these, at working on these issues? I think, unfortunately, EPA is, has, has always been and continues to be, and even less so now, it's always been, I mean, more so now, it's been under-resourced, and therefore, they haven't been able to, to fulfill their mandate, and so, with all of these things happening under their watch, obviously they're not, they, they're not doing enough. I think that there's good folks in there. There's people who are very committed and people who are just as, maybe not just as frustrated, but frustrated and sympathetic um, um, to the plight of communities. But, um, but as I said, their hands are tied because of being under-resourced, because the laws aren't strict enough. We don't have, you know, we have Corexit being used for the BP oil spill which is banned in 90 countries, but it doesn't even appear on our list of toxics, and therefore the um, Corexic-soaked um, stuff, waste from the BP oil drilling disaster went into um, municipal, like um, the landfills that were cited for household waste. So we have those kind of circumstances that are happening, and it's because they, they just don't have enough in, in the way of the laws and the way of the resources for monitoring enforcement to do what they need to do. So. So EPA is just not effective enough because they don't have enough to be effective. Um, and a lot of this also takes place at the state level uh, as well. And so do you see similar kinds of problems with the state environmental agencies? I do, and then it's worse, of course, depending on the political situation in those states even. So this is, there's under-resourcing in general, and then even more under-resourced in states where folks don't, don't um, you know, are either overly influenced by polluters or they yeah or they just start it's not a priority to protect these communities mm -hmm. um see, in light in light of that i mean do you all think of um I mean, there are a number of different strategies and maybe it varies based upon the circumstances but you know educating people organizing people lawsuits uh Certainly, the NAACP, or at least the Legal Defense, you know, has has history of the lawsuit. How how do you think about which of these techniques? Is is your the first technique you would go to, um, or and or kind of what's uh, more effective in light of these problems? Right, and so it varies again because even like even if we thought. So litigation can be a, a challenge when there is, for example, Title VI, you have to prove intent in some cases. And, and can you just, not everyone may know what Title VI oh, is. yeah, so the Civil Rights Act. <laughs> so you have to improve, like you can't just, it can't just be that this community was disproportionately impacted by something. You actually have to improve, approve that they were intentionally poisoned um, and so just because they are poisoned it, it's not enough in terms of uh, litigation and so and so not only the, those those kind of um, 
you know, the, the, the legal handles are insufficient, but also even when there, you know, you might have amassed enough grounds, then you have these corrupt courts. And, um, and then you have, you know, the fact that we have Citizens United now where corporations are seen as people. And so it, there's all of these challenges around, around the viability of litigation. So we have to be too, you know, picky about when, when it is that we employ it. We definitely employ it Sometimes it's just, um, it's a symbolic, like we might do it just to raise, in and of itself, raise awareness or, but not necessarily intending or thinking that we're going to win a suit. So it depends, I guess, is the, is the point there, of where, whether it's, you know, what our purpose is in doing it and will we achieve that purpose in doing it. And so otherwise, yeah, with the other tools in our toolbox, education, organizing, using the media to gain. So sometimes we've been able to just kind of name and shame and have successes there. What, what, can you give me an example uh, of where you've done that in the environmental justice uh, work? Yeah, the name and shame particularly. Um, or, or, or any of these, I mean, where these strategies have been, uh, you think, useful in, a, in achieving results for communities. Yeah, so I would name the work that, uh, well, a number of the coal-fired power plants um, and, um, in Chicago, actually, with the Fisk and Crawford coal plant, the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, Pero, and then late to the game was the NAACP Southside Branch. Um, really, the, they used all these tools in their toolbox. They partnered with the Harvard School of Public Health to do a public health study on the impact of these two coal plants, the Fisk and Crawford plants, on the community. They did a big media campaign. They did a lot of organizing. They, 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 they did um, direct action in front of City Hall. And they, uh, they, um, and then they, they did a local. They developed a local ordinance and then put it before city council. And the local ordinance, you know, put um, certain standards. It, it, it opened the question of what kind of air quality do we want, and it put like standards in terms of air quality. And then it was, and then all that dialogue and, and organizing and conversations with even the plant owners and so forth resulted in the uh, mayor giving an ultimatum to Midwest Generation, which control those two coal plants to either clean them up or shut them down. And so Midwest Generation decided they didn't want to invest a billion dollars to clean them up and they shut them down, so. Mm. Um, in the uh, climate uh, space, uh, there's certainly a lot of talk about cap and trade uh, approaches to addressing, addressing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, people talk about uh, so first, I mean, we're at the University of Chicago, so we think about uh, economic-oriented uh, solutions. And people talk about greenhouse gas particularly because of the global nature of, at least it's presented as the global harms from those emissions, right? So you're warm, it, the gases are going into the atmosphere, it's warming the atmosphere overall. Um, so in some senses, people have thought, okay, well, this is actually is a great example for cap and trade. Mm -hmm. But uh, a number of the environmental justice organizations have been opposed to cap and trade. Can you say, in this context, uh, can you say a little bit more about why that's been the position of the organizations? Sure. So there's a couple of reasons why people, um, a few reasons, I guess. One, the biggest reason is because the concern is that if you cap uh, emissions of carbon in in general, then it's going to result in, um, in, in increases in pollution in other, in certain areas, areas that are already experiencing pollution burden. And so that is, uh, that is, uh, that's the, the, the dominant concern. 
Um, and they've seen that play out, I think, um, uh, evidently in some areas where they've um, employed this around the world. And so that's definitely the, the predominant concern. So the idea would be if a coal-fired power plant reduces its emissions or shuts down, it's going to have to be replaced by natural gas plant or something like that, which is cleaner in terms of its carbon emissions, but uh, still emits CO2, and maybe it's located in a uh, frontline community, uh, and so that community experiences and again, there's not as so much sulfur, but there's nitrous oxides and things like that. Yeah, that and even even that if it's if it just gets to be more expensive to emit carbon in general, you know, then people will they'll continue to to even run coal plants, but run them in places where it's cheaper for them to run them. And then maybe a, a plant that only is like a peaker plant that only runs when there's peak need will run all the time. And those peaker plants tend to be in those communities that they consider to be hot spots where there's already other, other pollution going on. So like those, both of those are concerns to folks. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, and a number of the, the, I'll say the big green groups, mm. um, uh, uh, maybe that's a term of art uh, mm -hmm. here, uh, uh, have different views on this. Mm -hmm. What does big, when I say big green, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I, I, most people when they say it, um, they're talking about these you know, traditional big environmental organizations that have a, you know, a, usually a conservation background. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, so that's usually what I think of when I say big green. So yeah. when you say you think of big green, so a number of the big green organizations have come out in favor of policies like cap and trade and, and things like that. Um, so obviously we see some disagreements mm -hmm. here. Are there other areas of disagreements with, with big green, um, big green organizations? And more generally, how do you see the relationship between those larger organizations, no, those, not larger, but those, those organizations, mm -hmm. I guess is a, better, is a better way of putting it, uh, and your program at the NAACP and frontline communities? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, so whether it is whether it is being in favor of those kind of mechanisms that the communities don't believe in, and then not necessarily. So one of the challenges is since they are big organizations and they're influential organizations, and they have a lot of money, then um, they're the ones who are making relationships with the federal government, and so they they will be negotiating some of the very policies that end up being causing harm to frontline communities and they have the influence to do that and they, they're and some of them don't necessarily take leadership from frontline communities where we, we think that frontline communities should be as the ones who are most impacted by these environmental policies they should be ones who are leading on the solutions and so we've seen time and time again even with the clean power plan the, the flaws in the clean power plan as it relates to some of the market-based mechanisms and, and not necessarily enough emphasis on energy efficiency in some of the other areas. It was, the architects of it were, was one of the big green organizations that really got in and, 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 and helped to, to design this program with, um, with federal officials. And so, yeah. And then, so, so how do you address that? Do you say, hey, well, like, what, what about us? Like, we need a seat at the table. Here's a counter report. How do you try to 
do you educate, organize, uh, litigate? I mean, how, how, do yeah. you, how, how, do you, how do you manage those relationships? Yeah, so some of them, I mean, so you've seen a whole range of things. Like sometimes they'll, people will do like an open letter to, like there was an open letter at one point to, to one of the big green organizations. There was another open letter to a number of them. To, because sometimes people are not even realizing. They're just like an elephant in a china shop. They don't even realize what they're, what they're doing or the impacts of what they're doing. So that's kind of best faith faith scenario. Sometimes it's really pointing out to the to federal officials or government officials that you know that there is a, there's another view and as you said organizing and building power and really um, presenting that alternate view. And sometimes it's putting together groups like there's a, a, a group that's come together called the Building Equity and Alignment Group which consists of the Big Greens, it consists of foundations that fund the Big Greens and grassroots groups all coming together and saying we need to be in alignment and, and we need to have set, a, set a, a table where we come together around common principles and practices and hold each other accountable to it. And that's definitely the, the, the most promising practice because we do want similar things. We just need to get folks on, on the same page. Uh, in just a minute, I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience. Uh, one or two more from, from me first. Um, so some of your initial work related uh, was in gender uh, issues. Um, how, do, how does that work uh, affect what you do now? And maybe how do climate uh, and energy issues uh, impact uh, women differently? Or as a perspective, uh, a gender perspective um, uh, to that work, to these issues? Yeah. So. So what actually led me to doing work on climate change was through the, the gender justice work that I was doing, particularly internationally, and, um, and finding that women were disproportionately negatively impacted by some of the by, by climate change in particular and other environmental injustices, and that women were least likely to be at the decision-making tables, whether at the helm of big green organizations or, um, or in, in government where decisions were being made. But yet, studies were showing that, that when women are in leadership, that resources are handled differently. There's more sustainable ways of, um, of operating, whether it's at the household level or at the community level. So this is what we we're finding internationally. And, um, and so I was interested in actually what was happening here in that regard as well and found similar patterns. And so whether it's the earthquake in Gujarat or, the, or um, Hurricane Katrina, after disasters, the, the incidence of violence against women spikes significantly. So that was one of the first findings. Um, that it's, it's, you see that in disaster after that, even after the BP oil drilling disaster, the domestic violence um, incidents in the police blotters quadrupled in some communities. Hmm. And so that's one thing. Um, also, in terms of even on the other side of the climate continuum, in South Dakota and North Dakota, where they have these man camps where they do the oil drilling and so forth, you have this whole incident of, um, and they, they actually call them man camps. Anyway, uh, <laughs> they, they, um, they have this incident, uh, incidents of, um, of high levels of trafficking and drug trade and so forth, and these are often in indigenous lands, and so you have um, in these areas an extreme amount of, of missing and disappeared and, and, um, and murdered women, indigenous women, who are impacted by, this, by this, these, these areas and those practices and trades that go on there. 
And then, um, and then also in, in overseas, where, and particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa, where women's responsibility in the household was to gather water for the household. Women were having to work, walk further to get water. So, and girls were having to miss school because they've had their, their, their duty was to be to go before school to get water and then bring it home and then they, they'd go to school and then they'd come back home and, you know, for the day. But because they're having to walk twice as far to get the water, they don't have time to go before school and get back in time. And so get, girls were now, you know, um, missing their entire education just because of this household duty that has shifted because of drought um, caused by climate change. So there's multiple ways that, that women and girls are disproportionately impacted. And one of the intersections of that, of this um, um, violence against women and then this walking further to get water was in South Africa when I was doing a focus group on female controlled condoms. They were saying that they wanted female controlled condoms so that the girls could wear them when they would go to get water because that was the level of incidence of sexual violence when they would go to get water was so high that they wanted to wear them every time they were going to get water. So that, I mean, it was the most chilling thing I've heard probably ever. Um, and so that, um, so these are the kind of things that really led me into doing climate change work in the first place through that lens and through that work around gender justice. Um, wow. Um, uh, I guess my last question, um, uh, before kind of opening it up to the audience would be um, what role can those uh, people, uh, myself included, who do not live in frontline communities um, do uh, uh, that is supportive of your work and communities on these issues? Yeah. So definitely, and especially in the, these academic settings, we're seeing so many, we've, we've been in ourselves involved in so many relationships where, um, where, where professors or students, groups of students have been instrumental in some of the, the work that we've done. A group of students, or one student actually, who is um, studying um, regulatory law, like utility law, she, we, um, her professor asked me, said that her, uh, his class had to do practical, uh, practical projects in order, as part of their, um, uh, you know, studies. And so they, he, he asked me for a list of topics that would be useful. And so I gave them to him. And then, and one of them was looking at utility shutoff policies. And so she did a, you know, a great um, job on this question that I asked. And out of that, we put out this report last year called Lights Out in the Cold, Reforming Utility Shutoff Policies as if Human Rights Matter. And that report has changed utility policies because people have used it to organize and push for more, to, for fair utility policies, which is huge. Um, they actually got in Detroit, the Detroit Edison to be able to, um, to, uh, to the, the Public Service Commission actually forced them to have better energy efficiency um, assistance for low-income customers as a result of using that report, you know, as a catalyst. And so, and there's many, many examples of the same. Another group of students right now is working at in Indiana University, Bloomington. They are putting, they, this group of uh, 20 students are doing their capstone project around low-income access to solar. So that's really exciting. Another group of students 
studied um, legal handles to for, around gentrification and displacement that we're now being able to use to put together a toolkit on how to pre prevent um, displacement at the municipal level. So there's so, and then the Harvard School of Public Health was instrumental, as I said before, in um, working with um, Chicago um, frontline groups around the coal plants, and they were able to find that for they when they tease out all the other environmental factors, they found that 40 deaths and a thousand hospitalizations per year were attributed attributed to the Fisk and Cropper plants, which was a piece of data that was critical in their um, education campaign and getting um, the public on board. So there's so many so many research questions and so many things that that universities, students, and, and others can do to help t communities in their campaigns and drive them towards success. Well, I, th I think, unfortunately, we've hit our time limit. I want to thank Jackie for showing us uh, and sharing with us about her work. And please join me in a big round of applause. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website, at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.